0: Life Podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Today, we're going to be in John chapter 19. And if you're just joining with us uh, for this month of December, we've been taking this theme about <clears throat> beholding your king, behold your king. And the statements that we find throughout uh, <clears throat> Scripture about who Jesus is—that uh, He is the King—and uh, last week we looked a little bit and talked a little bit about how the the people, when uh, presented, uh, when they were presented with Jesus as the King of the Jews. Um, Pilate, you know, asked them basically, hey, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And the people chose Barabbas, who was a notorious robber, and they also chose uh, Caesar, um, who was a tyrant, um, a worldly tyrant, rather than choosing Jesus, who was the king of the Jews. And um, this week, uh, we're going to look here at John chapter 19, and the story that we're going to look at here is probably pretty familiar to you. I mean, you probably have uh, read it. You know about some things about it. But it'll probably be unfamiliar to you and some of the things that we're going to pull out of it uh, that will help us to see uh, about Jesus being our King and just the wonderful salvation that uh, He has planned for us. And you know, what's so interesting about things like this is we're going to be reading, this is a narrative, meaning this is a story um, God's word is made up of of all kinds of things like this, whether it be stories or whether it be doctrine, whether it be prophecy. But what's so amazing about all these things is that all of it is Scripture. All of it is God breathed, and we know because it's God breathed, therefore it's perfect. It's inerrant, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and in righteousness. Uh, as what uh, God's Word tells us. And so we have historical accounts, such as what we're going to look at here today in John chapter 19. Um, But you also have things like prophecy, which is going to play a major role in what we're going to look at here today um, as we see things that were prophesied in the past, and yet they were fulfilled in the present time of Jesus Christ. And how God brings all of that stuff together together to just reveal about who he is, and it's this constant unfolding drama of redemption. All the way from Genesis, all the way throughout all of Scripture, uh, we see all of that. And so we have God's word on all of these things here. And one of the things about the story that we're going to look at here in John uh, 19 is his death. And when you think about Christ, I mean, this is the Christmas time, you know, we're thinking about, you know, Jesus being born, things like that. But if we stop the story at his birth, we miss out on God's plan of redemption, right? Like, it's not just about his birth. I mean, the, the fact of him coming in the flesh, Jesus coming in the flesh, living among us, but then eventually dying, resurrecting from the grave. That is God's whole story. And so this is really what I want to focus in on uh, this morning about uh, beholding your king. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you today. Jesus is the king and he has provided a great salvation. Jesus is the king, and he has provided a great salvation. So if you're here with me in John chapter 19, let's read this eyewitness account from John as he saw these things happen, and he's recorded for us what he saw. Let's begin reading here in verse number 18 in John chapter 19. Bible tells us here in John 19 and beginning here in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 16, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross that read, here it is, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written, So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. We learn about a great salvation that Jesus provides. And so here's some things that we learn from what John saw about this. Number one, Jesus' death was planned by God. Now, this may be a hard truth to swallow because when you start thinking about the horrors of crucifixion, you start thinking about Jesus being flogged, being beaten, being rejected, all those things, right? When you when you think about that and you then start to think, wait a minute, this was planned by God, God allowed this, God permitted this. How is that fair? How could that be? But Jesus' death was planned by God. I was talking to a, a lady on the telephone just the other day, a lady that reached out to us through one of those ads that we run. And uh She's going through the holiday time here without her children. Her son had died uh, previously. Um, her um, other daughter uh, has not, she's not had any communication with her daughter in the past 10 years. And as I was talking with her, I was talking to her about the gospel, talking about who Jesus is, and the comfort that we can have by being part of the family of God. Uh, Not just an earthly family, but a heavenly family, a spiritual family that we have because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, her thoughts were in the fact of, I don't believe that because God took my son. God did this. And there's a lot of anger and bitterness because of what she believes that God did or God did not do, that God did not preserve her son or God allowed this or God permitted that. But this is, what, this is what's so fascinating about the gospel is, see, God gave his best. God allowed Jesus to die for us. And so sometimes we get so selfish thinking that, you know, things happen in our life and people die and people uh, get sick and we're going, man, God, why would you do that? But wait a minute, God gave his only begotten son for us. And he allowed his son to be crucified and mocked and scourged and rejected. And it really helps us to understand that God is not some evil tyrant, but actually he's a very loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful God. And it's us who are really the sinners and us the ones that are really evil and not compassionate and not loving. But God really is loving and God is gracious and kind towards us. But Jesus' death was planned by God. Scripture teaches us this, uh, this thought that uh, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Even before the world, the, the the foundations of the world were ever laid, Jesus, it was planned that he would be slain. Uh, before any of that happened. And John wants us to see that the cross of Jesus was no accident. It was planned. God planned it in all of it. Everything, every part was ordained by God, right down to the small details as we'll see here just in a moment. I want you to take notice of a few ways this salvation was planned by God. First of all, through fulfilled prophecy. Take note of the verses here. It says, so they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. The word skull there is a Latin word and it means Calvary. Uh, You find in other uh, instances of the uh, crucifixion account, it says that they went out to Calvary. But uh, it says that they came to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. Now take note of that phrase there. So they took Jesus and he went out. He went out where? Where did he go? They took him outside of the city. This was a common practice during this time that they would take criminals and take them outside of the city gates to be executed. But we find in Scripture that this is really actually pointing back to the Old Testament sacrificial way that they would take the sacrifices. Because we find in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 27, it says, But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. And that's what they would do with these sacrifices, is they would take the sacrifice and they would take it outside of the camp, take it outside of the city and there they would burn their hides, their flesh, and their, uh, their refuse in the fire. And so this is just exactly what Jesus was, was happening in Jesus' life. He became the sin offering for us, and he was taken outside of the city gates, and they are crucified you know, as you study God's Word, when you read through the book of like Leviticus in the Old Testament, it's always very helpful to also read, in connection with that, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Because a lot of the things that it teaches us in the book of Leviticus are also applied there in the book of Hebrews. It's a it's a type, it's a foreshadow of the things that were to come, and we see those things fulfilled. And we find that fulfilled, in, for example, in Hebrews 13, 11 through 13, it talks about this, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, and I love this, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? To think about that uh, the writer of Hebrews commands us and asks us now and says, Listen, I want you, just as Jesus went outside of the camp, he wants us as well to go after him outside of the camp, suffering and bearing the reproach of Jesus Christ. Also, John notes that Jesus bore his own cross. Take a look at what it says. It says, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. This probably refers, I believe, to the only the horizontal beam of the cross. I believe that uh, at the place of uh, crucifixion, the, the the upright vertical piece of the cross was already there, set in the ground, and it was already there. And when they got there, then they hoisted up the the, the horizontal beam of the cross already on there. Um, so it wasn't this entire cross, and the upright portion was already there. As, as we see, it's paralleled in uh, some of the other gospel accounts, like in Luke uh, 23, 26, report for us that there was a man, a man named S- the Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled to bear the cross of Jesus. And you've got to think about uh, what has taken place in, in Jesus' time here. Uh, he, after he leaves the Garden of Gethsemane being arrested, he goes through a series of mock, mock trials, uh, being sleep-deprived. Uh, there they, they beat him, they keep him uh, till morning. They, they take him there to uh, Pilate. Uh, there he's flogged, he's, uh, he's whipped. Uh, goes through all this, this uh, terrible, uh, traumatizing things of his body. And then he's then forced to carry a crossbeam, a heavy beam, uh, through the city to going outside of the camp. And there we find him, no doubt, I'm sure, under the weight of that cross. he's probably, probably falls. He probably is tripping. And so what do they do? They compel a man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross for him. And so Jesus carries this, and this was all planned. And it was, a, it was all planned by the Father uh, that all of these things would happen. Also, our text here says that Jesus was crucified between two others. Look what it says. So they took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross to the place of the place of the skull. There they crucified him and with him two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. And uh, we find here that John doesn't mention specifically the fact that they were criminals or tells us as uh, Luke does. It says that they were malefactors. But in dying between two thieves, this is planned by God. It was fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah fifty three twelve it says that predicted that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And so this is just a fulfillment that this is all planned by God, that everything would happen as He bore the sin of many and He interceded for the transgressors. The other Gospels report that when they arrived at Golgotha, just before they crucified Jesus, they gave Him wine to drink mixed with myrrh. That's found in Mark 15, 23, uh, and also Matthew 27, 34. But after tasting it, it says that He refused to drink it. Why? Well, because that, uh, that, that drink that they were offering Him was a sedative. It was a narcotic to dull the pain. Here they are, they're being crucified in probably one of the most excruciating forms of capital punishment. And they're offering Jesus a narcotic to dull the pain. And what does he do? He refuses to drink it. Why? Because I believe that Jesus wanted to experience every single thing on that cross for us. As he, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so Jesus there, He refuses that, and He experiences the full wrath of God on the cross, and He was fully aware of what was going on. John chapter 19, 28 reports that later, as He hung on the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. And it's at that point that they give Him some sour wine or vinegar on a sponge to drink, Uh, Two references, uh, gall and sour wine, that fulfilled the messianic uh, prophecy that's found in for us in Psalm 69, 21, where David complained, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Also in Psalm 22, David depicts the details of death by crucifixion hundreds of years before that cruel punishment even was invented. In Psalm 22:15, 15, the sufferer describes his thirst. He says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. In John chapter 19, verse 29, it says that they used a stalk of hyssop to lift the sponge up for Jesus. So here's Jesus, he's on the cross, and he's saying, I thirst and so they take this stalk of a hyssop they stick a sponge on it and it's full of this, uh, this drink and they hold it up to his mouth so he can kind of like, you know, suck on it a little bit. What's interesting to think about that is that the hyssop is what, was, what Israel used. If you go back, again, if you go back in the Old Testament and you see when, uh, when the death angel was to come there through, uh, through uh, the, uh, the land of Egypt... They would take the hyssop. They would take that, that hyssop, and they were to put the blood on the door. Now watch this. This is what they were supposed to do. It says that they were supposed to strike the top and the two sides. Look at this. Here they are. They take that hyssop, right? They get the blood. What do they do? What is that? It's a cross. You've got to look at this stuff, and you've got to think, God has planned it. All of it's planned, even down to the, to the smallest details that God was using in all of this. I want you to consider something else about this thirst of Jesus. As he says, I thirst. We see the physical side of that, but I want you to think about the spiritual aspect of that. Thirsting. When Jesus was on the cross and He was, he, he was being judged by God, God has, has turned His back on His Son. There He's bearing the full weight and the guilt of all of our sin. I thirst! Yes, there's that physical aspect of it, but I also believe there is a spiritual condition of that. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, and Psalm 63, 1 We read about the psalmist whose soul was so parched as he felt separated from God. And so Jesus was spiritually thirsty as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our text here, we see John's words in verse number 18. Look at it, it says, And they crucified him. It, it it just seems so minute. You, you know, when you read that, and they crucified him. Seems so small. Those words give us, though, so much detail about Jesus' death. And we don't have to look very far, hard to see that his death was no accident. God predicted it and planned it all for our salvation. Secondly, Another thing we read about, Jesus' death was planned by God providing this great salvation is through Pilate's chosen words. Look at this. None of the Gospels, including John here, describe the horrific details of death by crucifixion. It is one of the most torturous forms of execution ever devised. When the victim and the soldiers arrived to the place of the crucifixion, the soldiers worked very swiftly. They knew what they were doing. They knew exactly how to carry out a crucifixion. They were trained professionals. In fact, the, the, the Romans actually boiled this down to an exact science where they could just, bam, get it done, get it done. Um, they had much, much faith in this type of, of, uh, of, uh, of execution. In history, we read that during the revolt of Spartacus, 6,000 men were crucified in a single day. And the crosses stretched all the way from Capua all the way down through Rome. They knew what they were doing. And so here's these men, they're crucifying our Lord. And one of the things that they do with this is they're forcing their victim to walk through the streets. People are seeing that these men are going to being condemned to die. And one of the things that they would do is they would sometimes write a placard and they would hang it on the individual of what crime that they were uh, being crucified for. And isn't it interesting that the placard that reads why Jesus was being crucified was for what? Being the king of the Jews. And we're going to see it's, it's kind of interesting here about all of that. Uh, what all that in details, especially with uh, Pilate's words here. But here they would take this individual. When they would get him there, they would uh, they would feel around. They would take the spikes. They would pound it into their wrist. Here, not pound it into their wrist. Then they would uh, fix their feet in such a way where they were bent slightly, uh, and then they would put a spike down there through their feet. Crucifixion was death by asphyxiation because when you're there on the cross with your arms stretched out, all of your body weight is now hanging, and it's hard to breathe. In fact, one of the things that the Romans would do to prolong the death is uh, by either fixing their feet in such an angle... Or sometimes there was even possibly a, uh, a wooden uh, post or something that was affixed to the crossbeam itself where the individual could push up with their feet to get a breath and then slump back down. And this would go on up down up down up down for hours and hours and hours sometimes even days before the victim would even expire that's the reason why we read that the soldiers would come and break the legs of the individual so that way they couldn't do that and then they would uh, asphyxiate to death and so this sign was put on there let's continue reading our text here Look what it says here. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Pilate had the charges written in three languages, Hebrew or Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew was the language of the Jewish people in Israel. Latin was the language of the ruling Roman government. And Greek was the commonplace, marketplace language of the day. Why those three languages? Why is that? Um, This is just a constant reminder that the message of salvation is for the entire world. We read about that in John chapter 1, 29, John 3, 16, John 4, 42, John chapter 12, verse 20 through 21. Now take note of the charge that Pilate wrote. John chapter 19, 19. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews... You've got to think about this scene here. Pilate, I'm sure, is fed up with these Jews. I mean, here they are. They bring this man. They're like, hey, you got to judge this guy. you got to judge this Why? What, what crime has he committed? Well, you know, he did... It. I don't find any fault in him. Oh, you're... Blah, blah, blah. Now, the Romans didn't like the Jews, much less the Jews liked the Romans. I mean... Here they are, a, a foreign uh, power comes in and starts taxing you, starts taking what they want, uh, being rough with you. They, they didn't like each other. And here's Pilate, and he's just like, all right, fine. You guys want to play this game? I'll tell you what. I'm going to write Jesus, the king of the Jews, on here. Because, why? Because you guys don't think he's a king. So I'm just going to write it anyways. And it's a bit of sarcasm that he's putting on to them. And he's like, "Fine, here, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. Oh, boy, they have a hard time with that one. Look what it says that they do here. So the chief priests of the Jews said to him, do not write, don't do that. What are you doing? I don't want you to put that. Don't say the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate, so so fed up with it. He says this, what I have written, I have written. This is where I want you to see that Jesus' death was planned by God, because God even used a tyrant such as Pilate to speak truth to these people, to speak truth to us. Pilate uses this as an opportunity for sarcasm, but God uses it as an opportunity for truth. Jesus really was the promised king. Jesus really was the King of the Jews. Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really is coming again. Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. And all of this to speak truth to us. If you can remember when uh, he was born, Magi from the east come to Jerusalem saying what? Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would be with child through the Holy Spirit, he said regarding Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And although in his first coming he died as a sacrifice for our sins, in his second coming he will rule the nations with a rod of iron as King of kings and Lord of lords is what Revelation 19 verses 15 through 16 teaches us. So like Caiaphas, who inadvertently prophesied that one would die for the sins of the whole nation, we have here Pilate here saying, here's the king of the Jews, and it's very important that you make sure that you know Jesus as your savior, that he really is the king of your life. Here's the third thing through the gambling of Christ's clothes. We see Jesus' death was planned by this through the gambling of Christ's clothes. Look at our text here again. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic. So we have two pieces of clothing here. We have his outer clothes and then his tunic. His tunic would basically be kind of like his underwear, okay? I know that's kind of weird to think about, but that's what it is. So it was the, the outer clothes and then his clothes that he wore underneath. And what did they do? They took them off of him. you got to remember, the Bible is not G-rated here, okay? It's got some things that are sometimes hard to, to think about, but this is really what happened. They took his clothes off of him. And this is a fascinating passage when you consider the scene here because here's four soldiers here they were part of this crucifixion detail. And look what it says that they did. So they, they took out the part for each of the soldier. the They divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it. But let's cast lots. Let's shoot the dice. Let's gamble for it. All right. Let's see. Come on. Anybody got a coin? Let's flip it. Let's see what's going to happen here. Rock, paper, scissors. Ready? Go. Right? That's what they're doing. And so it says here, so they cast lots for it to seize who it shall be. And this was to, notice, fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so what better way for them to pass the time than to, shoot the dice, to do a little gambling. I mean, they're there. They're part of the crucifixion detail. They're waiting for this man to die. They've already done their part. They've got uh, Jesus there up on the cross. They're just passing the time, just waiting for everything to finish up here. And so the prophecy here that the soldiers inadvertently fulfilled was Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And what's interesting to think about is that none of these pagan soldiers were aware of that song. They weren't over there, you know, shooting dice and be like, hey, wait a minute, we're fulfilling a prophecy here. No, wasn't happening. They weren't thinking about that, right? They're just doing it. And this prophecy was actually made a thousand years before Jesus would be crucified, But John points this out to let us know that this was not some random coincidence, right? These soldiers had no idea what was going on. They were only doing their duty. They were only doing their job. They were only doing what was natural. But, however, the very sovereign hand of God was behind all of this. To show us that Jesus is the King, that Jesus has provided a great salvation for us. Now look at this. I I think this is interesting. Why the details here about Christ's clothing? Verses 23 and 24. They took his garments, divided into four parts, and then his tunic. Why was Jesus' clothes taken from him? Why? I mean, this was a common practice, don't get me wrong, it's common practice for them to do this to every criminal. I mean, it's, it's an act of shame and, and humility that you're, I mean, out there hanging naked, right? But why? Why, why the details here about all this? Well, so I believe it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Let's, let's take a trip back there. Genesis chapter number three. In Genesis chapter number three, we read about this. Uh, As we see about the fall of man, uh, Satan tempts Eve, Uh, Adam is there with her, Um, Eve eats, gives also to her husband, and uh, it says here in uh, Genesis 3, verse number 7, after they partook of that fruit, it says, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Which I commanded you not to eat. You see how you see how guilt and shame go hand in hand with sin. It always does. Always goes hand in hand. And we read uh, later on here in Genesis three uh, about the uh, the curse that uh, God brings about them about saying about childbirth and uh, they would now have to uh, uh, eat of the of the ground and work it and things like that thorns and thistles. But look what it says here. He says you're going to return to the ground. Verse number 19. You turn to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For out of dust you dust you shall return. Then it says uh, here in um, verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And you think about this, right? God has pronounced judgment upon them. He says you're going to die. Now they didn't die that day, right? They continued to live on another day, another day and another day and another day and another day, but eventually they would die. But what does God do? He sees them in their shame and in their nakedness and here they're trying to conjure up some kind of, you know, fig leaves to put them to cover themselves up. But what does God do? He clothes them in his grace. He provides them clothing. Where does God get those clothes? From animals. What happened to have, happened to have, had to happen to those animals? They had to die, didn't they? And God clothes them and covers them. Now think about this. Here's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's naked. He's bearing our shame, our guilt. He's totally exposed before God. See, all of this is a fantastic picture to help us to see that even in our sin and in our shame, God doesn't clothe us with animal skins, but when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what does He clothe us in? The righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're clothed no longer to be naked and no longer to be exposed of our guilt and our shame. God clothes us and He gives that to us. And this is just such an awesome thing about all of this that God does this and God provided for this and this wonderful salvation that God provided for us. Here's the last thing, very quickly Jesus the King has provided a perfect salvation. Look at John chapter 19 23 through 25. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, the way that God has planned salvation for us, he's provided us with the only wise king who could die for us. And in his death, Jesus has provided a perfect salvation. Perfect. We don't need to add anything to it. There's no amount of human effort, human works, nothing that we could ever add to this perfect salvation. Because if we ever did, it would diminish what God has perfectly done. And it would be worthless. And as the cross was getting closer and closer, Jesus prayed the night before John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And here, just before he utters his final words, uh, we find in Luke 23, and also uh, it's also cited in Psalm 31, 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus cries out here, it is finished. He bows his head, and he gives up his spirit. You know, nobody took life from Jesus. <laughs> you ever think about that? I mean, this is, this is 100% man, 100% God. Nobody could take Jesus' life from him. They couldn't. He gave up his spirit. <laughs> That's amazing. He willingly laid down his life for us. The good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep is what we see in John chapter 10. The fact that Jesus finished or accomplished our salvation on the cross means that we cannot add anything to it. And I would encourage you, you know, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you need to turn to Christ. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, don't trust a church, don't trust a man, don't trust me, don't trust anybody other than Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, and he's the only one. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Jesus alone is the only one that provides this perfect salvation. He is the great king of our salvation, and we can trust him for that. Let's pray together.